If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations at Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Had they got their act together, thought differently, thought more agilely, again, lots of ifs and buts, there was the potential on the 14th and the 15th of May to stop the Germans in their tracks and even push them back into the river. And it just didn't happen. That was Lloyd Clark discussing the Nazi Blitzkrieg at a talk he gave at our recent M Shared Weekend event. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our fourth podcast of March 2017. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. For this week's episode, we're broadcasting a lecture from our World War II Day that was held last month at Bristol's M-Shed. The speaker is Lloyd Clark, a military historian with posts at both the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst and the University of Buckingham. He's also the author of numerous books, including, most recently, Blitzkrieg, Myth, Reality and Hitler's Lightning War, France, 1940. 
And this was also the subject of his talk. What I want to do um, this afternoon is not to give you a blow-by-blow account of the 1940 campaign. Um, It's incredibly complicated. And what I want to do is just to look at some of the key moments that might give you an insight into what happened and why. And to perhaps expose some of the myths that have grown up around the France 1940 campaign. Um, I'm a very lucky boy in as much as I'm an historian who teaches practitioners. Very few of us get the opportunity to do that. But for the last quarter of a century, I've been teaching officer cadets, warrant officers, right the way through to general level. That has really given me an insight into what military history, and history more generally, can achieve. It's got to be accurate. We've got to try and be as truthful as possible. We've also got to have a message And often I find that the messages that some history books give about history are um, not those that the the military might necessarily want to hear. They might not be detailed enough. They might not be sending the right messages, dealing with the correct themes for a military audience. The interesting thing about 1940 is that it's been a mainstay of British military education since... 1941. There's a very good reason for that. Obviously, in the immediate aftermath of Dunkirk, there have been so many lessons to learn. And when I write my books, obviously I'm writing for good people like yourselves, but I'm also writing with half a mind for what the military might want to pull out of that particular campaign. Hence my job also with the military at the Centre for Army Leadership, where I direct the academics. The last talk I gave on this subject was to a group of generals who dived immediately into the minutiae of what lessons could be learned from leadership, officership and generalship. And they really, really tested me because for them, the failure of the French, the British, the Belgians, the Dutch in 1940, was very much about a failure of leadership and generalship. I'm not going to focus on that for this group today, but I'm very happy sort of to take up questions afterwards that might go a little bit deeper into what the military may be thinking today of the 1940 campaign. But what I want to do is to start with (coughs) what I would suggest to you is um, a version of events about 1940 that very much (coughs) suggests, I feel, that 1940 and the German victory was inevitable. That the Germans had this unstoppable machine with tanks, (coughs) with stukas, with remarkable generals, and that there was very little that the French or anybody could have done to stop them. The whole premise of my book is that I think that that's incorrect. I really do feel that the Germans followed their noses to victory. It was an unfolding story to them. They made it up as they went along. And in fact, there were many opportunities where the French and the British, in particular, could have stopped them. And of course, history would have been very different. And that, of course, is what the British military today and the Americans, I've just come back from America, telling them the story of France 1940, which is not one they're particularly familiar with. They're very interested in the lessons that can be learned 
from that. The lessons particularly that can be learned from understanding your enemy, not just concentrating on yourself, but trying to get into the head of the opposition, what they can do, what they can't do, what their strengths and their weaknesses are. But I want to start with the 13th of May, 1940. And as I say, to give you that vision that I think sums up Blitzkrieg. The Germans, with their armoured divisions, have just swung through the wooded Ardennes. We'll come back to how they did that a little bit later. And they're sitting on the River Meuse. The one great natural obstacle that they had to overcome before a 250-mile advance to the Channel Coast to close, if you like, the back door on the allies that were hemmed in around the Channel Coast. In the early morning of the 13th of May, when three panzer divisions are waiting to pounce across the Meuse, the Germans, having learned lessons from the First World War, hammer French 55th Infantry Division on the other side of the river. And they do that not with artillery, certainly not to start with, but through the Stuka, the aerial artillery, perhaps the one iconic piece of technology that people associate with 1940. That bombardment lasted for several hours and it devastated the battlefield. It devastated the French will to fight, just like the hurricane bombardments that the British had put down on the Germans in 1918. And gradually, as the Germans built up their forces on the other side of the river during the day, self-propelled artillery, machine gun fire, mortars began to also strike the French. About 10 years ago, I interviewed one of the survivors of that bombardment, a man named David Boyer. And he was right in the front line. And he said to me, the air attack was far more than my imagination could have invented. In the minutes before the German attack, the explosions were so frequent that one could not distinguish individual bomb blasts. I was deaf and could hardly breathe. My world shook and swayed. I curled up into a ball and I sobbed. That, to me, is an image of Blitzkrieg because what came in its wake was a German assault crossing in rubber dinghies that led to a great breakthrough, followed by the tanks and a breakout that led to the Germans reaching the coast just a week later. But what we don't remember are how close the Germans got to being defeated on the River Meuse. In fact, I can say that if it was not for the work of one single man, a sergeant, the likelihood is that the Germans wouldn't have managed to build up a bridgehead on the French side. One man, one 24-year-old German soldier named Sergeant Walter Rubath. Got a picture of him here. That man was on the left wing of the corps attack, part of 10th Panzer Division, 86th Rifle Regiment. He crossed in a rubber dinghy, 
leading an 11-man assault party, largely of combat engineers, those that would bust through the bunkers, break the wire. Now, there were dozens of such groups leading this assault across the River Meuse. The only one that was successful was led by this man. And he managed to destroy several bunkers, take several trenches before getting to his objective. And when he got to his objective, he had a real decision to make because he was told, under no circumstances, advance any further. Go firm, set up a defensive position and wait for reinforcements. Rubath squatted on one knee, got out his field glasses and surveyed the scene. Smoke and haze. But the one thing that really disturbed him as he looked to his right, across the front, was there was nobody else in field grey, i.e. German, that was moving. An officer came up to him and said, Rubath, set up a defensive position and do it now. Now, as a sergeant, given an order by an officer, I think most of you here would recognise that there's some pressure to fulfil that order. Rubath said, no, sir. Why not? Because on the first division to our right, not one single man is moving. I suggest, respectfully, sir, that I now go to the right, get behind the French that are stopping our main effort, 1st Panzer Division, and cause chaos. He won the argument. The officer said, I use modern British military parlance, crack on, sunshine. And he gets behind those positions and he causes chaos. And he unlocks the front. First Panzer Division begin to trickle through and they, then they begin to flood through. I think that if you want to try and understand how and why the Germans were so successful in 1940, in that one decision, you have an insight. What kind of an army allows such intelligent disobedience? Very, very few. British Army, it's one of my jobs, is trying to encourage it. But in a hierarchical organisation like an army, an officer says do something, or a sergeant to a private, you do it. But sometimes it's not for the best. Sometimes you've got more information than the officer or the man giving the order. And there was a culture, certainly in the armoured forces of the German Wehrmacht, that allowed a sergeant to challenge an officer. And that ability led to the decisive breakthrough. What I want to do now is just having said that that is an image of the Germans being on the front foot, forward-thinking, dynamic, intelligently energetic, that in fact, that was only a very small part of the army. And yet that's the image that we get of the entire German army. Remember that only 10% of the German army was motorised, i.e. moved on wheels. The other 90% marched. You were either in a panzer division or a motorised division, an elite, or you marched like your forefathers did in the First World War or in the Franco-Prussian War or in the Napoleonic Wars or in Caesar's time. 
It was a two-speed army. And it was a two-speed army not just in terms of locomotion, but also in terms of intelligence. I don't mean genetically 90% were stupid. I mean that they hadn't undergone the same level of training. This was an army that had massively and rapidly expanded after 1935 due to conscription. And just basically, training had not been able to inculcate the millions that were now serving with the same sort of professionalism that the elites had. In fact, let's just ponder a little bit how well prepared the Germans were for the Second World War and what they were expecting in 1940. Because you know what? The high command did not want to go to war in 1940, not because they didn't want to put the wrongs of Versailles right, but because they felt that the only option the Germans had was to fight another attritional war. Indeed, the German plan that was created by the German chief of staff, Franz von Halder, was initially a plan to rerun the Schlieffen Plan of 1914, to all intents and purposes, a mechanised version, but still only moving at the speed of the foot infantry. And there were many generals, quite rightly, that said, my goodness, you know, here we are, we've got this plan, but it's just going to lead to catastrophe. We cannot win another attritional war. We just have not prepared for it. Our industry, our economy is not ready for that sort of a war. Even Hitler himself was not that impressed with the initial plan. And I think that the Germans, to a large extent, were suckered into a 1940s version of the Schlieffen Plan, partly because they knew quite a lot about what the British and the French were planning. Their Plan D, which was authorised by this man here, General Maurice Gamelin, who was the French head of the army, and also Field Marshal Lord Gort, VC, won a VC in uh, 1917 at Cambrai, and was the commander of the BEF, had both agreed to a plan that would see the best British and French forces moving into the centre of Belgium, up to the River Dial, as soon as the Germans started their invasion. I don't want to get into why Belgium all of a sudden became neutral. That's a bit of a sidebar. But the long and the short of it is they would have to move into Belgium because they were expecting a German attack to come through the centre of that, that area, the cockpit of Europe, where so many battles had been fought. There they would meet the German army and the combined strength of the British the French and the Belgians, together perhaps with the Dutch, would be enough to win another attritional war. Eric von Manstein, in the bottom left of that screen, is a man that perhaps some of you will know from great things on the Eastern Front later in the war. But relatively few people perhaps know that the origins of the plan that the Germans used came not from Hitler and the High Command, came from him, a chief of staff at an army group who was so frustrated that Germany might lose another war that he came up with his own plan, a different plan. The plan that the Germans were eventually go to, going to go to war with that was known as Falgelb, Case Yellow, Plan Yellow, we tend to call it. And that was 
the, I suppose, key to German victory. I'm not going to dwell too much on the plan, just to give you a very basic outline. But what the Germans had were three army groups, and I'll keep this simple. Von Bock up there on the top of the screen, his army group were going to put in the attack into Belgium. And by putting the attack into Belgium, they were going to say to the British and the French troops, come towards me and I will fix you, I will pin you in the middle of Belgium. While further to the south, another two army groups were also going to go about their work. Further to the south, of course, there was the Maginot Line. Now, the Maginot Line very much reflects French thinking at this time, very defensive. And they'd built a wall around uh, Alsace and Lorraine to stop the Germans coming through there. Well, the Germans weren't interested in coming through there. But even so, an army would be placed against it to pin and fix those troops as well. So the Allies are pin and fixed here, pin and fixed here, but of course there's an area in between the two. I'm sure that many of you have heard of it, maybe even holidayed there, and it's known as the Ardennes. It's a beautiful area. And do go and and see it, enjoy it. It's a lovely place. It's not an area, though, that if you ever go there, you think, you know what I'll do? I'll pass 1,222 tanks through here. (laughs) Because it's, it's ravined, it's heavily wooded. Roads are country lanes. There are little villages that you can get held up in just through cattle or a fallen tree or whatever. It's just... Well, Gamelon called it impassable. And as a result of that, his eye was taken away from it. You know where all this is going, even if you don't know the story. And of course, the Germans decided, you know what? If we're going to attack and we're going to try to avoid an attritional battle, attritional campaign, we're going to have to take some huge risks. And so what we're going to do is think the unthinkable. And we are going to pass our main effort, 34,000 men, 41,000 vehicles, and over 1,200 tanks as the spearhead of Army Group A through that area, through the Ardennes. And the French and the British won't expect it. They're going to be pin and fixed here and pin and fixed here. Hitler thinks, fantastic idea. The main effort, 1st Panzer Division, at the centre of a corps, would pass through Sedan. And for those of you that know anything about the Franco-Prussian War, 1870-71, you'll know how important the Battle of Sedan was then. He wants another Battle of Sedan. He doesn't necessarily, because he's quite conservative, want an immediate exploitation to the Channel Coast. What he wants is to get a centre of mass here that makes the French think, my God, who's on our right, who's on our left? And it it wrong-foots them. And that's where the plan sat on the 10th of May 1940. Army Group A, led by Panzer Group Kleist, von Kleist, with this huge armoured effort, the best, the most intelligent, the most experienced, the best equipped forces in the German army, would crack open the front but then be held back. The challenge for those armoured troops is how hard do we tug that lead? Do we drive forward or do we come back to heel? Well, 
you're probably ahead of me. Of course, they tug that lead very, very hard. They almost tug it out of Hitler's hand. But I'll come on to that in a moment. That is the Manstein plan, Plan Yellow. And I'm going to focus on that part of the plan. And I do apologise for not going into depth about the Netherlands and Belgium. I will mention them again a little bit later. But again, I want to get into the psyche of the Germans. You may or may not know that one of the divisional commanders right on the flank up here in the north, coming through the Ardennes, was one Erwin Rommel. He commanded the 7th Panzer Division. In fact, he was only given command of that division in February 1940. He was talent-spotted. Germans were brilliant at spotting these mavericks. His division eventually becomes known as the Ghost Division, partly because it ghosts between French and Belgian units, but partly because the high command didn't have a clue where he was, because he turned his radios off. Whether that's insubordination or intelligent disobedience will be a great essay title for my student. In fact, I might write that down a bit later. Um, But you've got men of that ilk that are leading this armoured charge. These are not men to mess with, either on the battlefield, but are also quite, as I say, intelligently disrespectful of the chain of command. But the, I suppose, the more famous effort is this effort that comes through the Ardennes here towards Sedan. That is Heinz Guderian's Panzer Corps. Heinz Guderian, the writer of Panzer Leader, one of the greatest German generals of the Second World War, very intelligent man, well-respected in terms of his military thinking. A great proponent of what we in the British military today call mission command. And the Germans called it Auftragstaktik, which is basically a commander will give a very, very brief order. You see this sometimes translated in business community. The um, order for the crossing of the Meurs was six lines long. It basically said the where, and it told you the when, and it told you the objective... And all subordinate commanders had to do was to fulfil that intent in the best way that they they could. There was no detail. He wasn't overlooking them. He was there to conduct the orchestra, not play every instrument himself. But I just wanted to say about the Ardennes, again, in history, the Ardennes movement has been called a sweep through the Ardennes, as though this impassable bit of land was in fact nothing of the sort. I completely disagree. The French and the Belgians had ample opportunity to cause the Germans all sorts of problems here. They could have been stopped in their tracks. Remember, I'm sure many of you have seen the film A Bridge Too Far, yeah? And we all complain that um, the British were trying to advance up a single road, so it's one tank front. Well, you know what? The Germans did it here. And exactly the same could have happened to them. Had there been more troops, better trained, better prepared, with greater will, they could have done all sorts of damage to the Germans. There were traffic jams 150 miles long in one area, 200 miles in another. In one case, the 1st Panzer Division was stopped by seven men with rifles who had blown up a hole in the road and pinned down the Panzer Grenadiers of that lead division. What had happened then if the French Air Force had come overhead and smashed those convoys? There would have been no Moors crossing. There would have been no attack to the coast. There would have been, I would respectfully suggest to you, no German victory in 1940. 
Because you know what? If this had not happened in the Ardennes, I really do feel that the French and the British would have held the Germans in Belgium and probably would have drawn them into an attritional war, which the Allies probably would have won. Lots of ifs, buts and maybes there. But I feel that quite strongly. I think that there was some brilliant leadership, some great risk-taking, but there was also a huge missed opportunity for the French. Not least because there was intelligence to suggest coming into Second Army, who had responsibility for this particular area, the Germans are on the move. They have tanks. They have men. What are you going to do about it, High Command? And the High Command said, it's just a diversion. We wouldn't worry about that too much. And eventually, even Second Army began to believe what they were being told from on high, despite the evidence in front of their eyes. There's no great threat here. In fact, it wasn't until the Germans had crossed the Meuse and were out the other side that the high command really took this threat seriously. And this is the, you can't see it particularly well, clearly this is a a map from my book, but this is the area that the Germans are attacking from. Here's Sedan. Here's the river and attacking through, led by 1st Panzer Division's Major General Kircher. Even at that point, I've said, when the Germans have crossed the river, Rubarth changes the face of the battle by taking a decision that allows the Germans to move forward. But where on earth are the French then to counterattack? Well, you know what? They're not really physically or mentally in a place to attack. That's not just because they'd run away from the Germans in the wake of their crossing, which meant that 10th Corps could not get their tanks and infantry forward. It also meant that they weren't intellectually there. Their doctrine wasn't there. They fought what we would call now, and then called then, a methodical battle. I talked about Auftrag's tactique of the Germans earlier, using radios, giving an intent and saying to the subordinates, just get on with it. The French still used First World War methods of communication. Commanders still had to wait until they received written orders in detail to do anything. Sometimes that took hours, sometimes they took days to come through, by which point, of course, the situation had changed. So by the time the French eventually get their act together, the Germans are far more agile. They've already swept through. There's a bit of a tank battle around Busson, but it's not much of a tank battle, and the Germans then push on. What's my point of telling you this? I just think that here again, there is a great opportunity for the French to have pushed the Germans back into the Meuse. Had they got their act together, thought differently, thought more agilely, again, lots of ifs and buts, there was the potential on the 14th and the 15th of May to stop the Germans in their tracks and even push them back into the river. And it just didn't happen. That's partly due to good German work, partly due to French thinking and doctrine, but also partly due to a lack of will on the French part. And so we now sort of move on towards the... I suppose, really famous part of the France 1940 campaign. The movement from the Meuse 
to the Channel Coast. It begins on the 15th of May. And I suppose you could say that it ends five days later when the Germans reach the coast. Others would say ends with the last man leaving the beaches of Dunkirk. But there is a three-week period here where, again, I really feel that the Allies had the potential to exploit the weaknesses in the German plan had they had the wherewithal to do it. And the 15th of May is a really important date in this battle. The 15th of May is the day that the Germans win the Battle of Gembler. Gembler is a village to the north of this map. And it's the largest tank battle in the France 1940 campaign, even though it's not in the Army Group A area. But it's the battle that sees Army Group B, von Bock, that holding formation finally break through in that area. It means that Army Group B, above this movement here, can now begin to move towards the Channel Coast themselves. In other words, you've got the closing of the jaws around what was going to become the Dunkirk perimeter. So it's not just about Army Group A. Army Group B do some remarkable work, work as well. What about the Dutch? The Dutch capitulate on the 15th of May. So they're out of the picture, and those German troops can drop south to get involved in the battles that are eventually going to be fought around Dunkirk. It's also worth um, thinking about some of the weaknesses that we see with the German situation at this point. With any of you with some military knowledge, you'll see that those arrows potentially, rather than just revealing that the Germans are taking a huge amount of territory very quickly, might also suggest to you that there are vulnerabilities. Because the faster you move, the more your logistics, your fuel, your ammunition needs to try and keep up with you. And of course, if you're a tank commander, commanding a group of, let's say, six or seven tanks, you're moving forward, but you're not holding on to the ground behind you. It's open for anybody else to take. And this was the great fear of Hitler and the high command during this period after the 15th of May. Aren't these fast-moving tanks incredibly vulnerable? And of course, they were. If the French and the British could do something to stop them from the flanks. As Churchill said, the head is protruding out of the shell saying this is like a tortoise. Let's cut the head off as it protrudes forward. The first attempt to try to do this was down here in the south by a colonel. His name was Charles de Gaulle, and he was in command of a new tank division that had been hastily put together, was not at full strength, but he tried valiantly on both the 17th of May and the 19th of May, to attack into the rear elements of 1st Panzer Division. He got smacked aside on both occasions. But if you look carefully at those battles, you'll recognise something really important. He does get smacked aside, but for seven hours on both days, the German advance stops completely. In other words, a half-hearted attempt by a hastily formed division had the ability to stop the entire German attack. 
So what would happen if, in fact, there was a really massed, concentrated Allied attack? Well, this happened on the 21st of May from Arras, perhaps more famously known for the Battle of Arras, and we're coming up to its centenary in 1917, little known for the site of a major engagement in the 1940 campaign, which saw largely British troops take on Erwin Rommel's 7th Panzer Division and some SS troops from the Liebstandarte. What was meant to happen is that they were meant to attack south, link up through Cambrai, with some French troops attacking north to cut off the head of the tortoise. The story is outlined in my book, but basically what happens is the French don't turn up. The French don't turn up because they've lost their will. They're dislocated. They believe they've lost the battle, maybe even lost the war. And that's what war fighting's all about. It's not how many men you kill. It's about whether the enemy are still willing to fight because they can still be alive. But if they do that, that's what you're after. You want their will shattered. And the French will really, by this point, have pretty much been shattered. And so the British make an impression, but without something turning the heads of the Germans, looking to the south with no French, there were real problems. And so that attack was abortive. But again, it held up the Germans. The impact was less about the ground that it took. It made Hitler incredibly worried. Incredibly worried. He thought, my goodness, if the British can achieve what they achieved and to stop the advance, like de Gaulle had stopped the advance, are we moving into an ambush? Are we getting to a point where these armoured troops are so far ahead of the supporting infantry that they're just going to be surrounded and annihilated. And so he takes a decision which really reflects Hitler trying to grab hold of that leash again and tug the armoured troops to his heel. And he orders a halt. Four days after the first German troops reached the Channel Coast, at a point when the Dunkirk perimeter is forming up and potentially the armoured troops to the south of that forming pocket, Guderian's troops, Hoth's armoured divisions, could obliterate the British and the French, Belgium and Dutch troops that had withdrawn into this forming pocket, Hitler loses his nerve. And from the 24th to the 27th of May... Nothing moves on the front. Nothing moves because Hitler has lost his nerve. And he's supported in that by von Rundstedt, the commander of Army Group A, by von Kleist, the commander of the Panzer Group. Everyone is now getting really worried. They can't believe their success. Surely this is a trap. And of course, what happens in that period of time is that the evacuation from Dunkirk really begins in earnest. And it's a huge operational error on the German part, which leads to huge strategic significance. 
the fact that so many troops get away form the heart of an army that is then going to fight in North Africa, in Italy, and then again in Normandy, is of huge, huge significance. So what we find again is on one hand, the Germans following their nose, stumbling to victory, making it up as they go along. But I can't help but suggesting that at the same time, we must be looking at some missed opportunities on the part of the Allies. So, a brief conclusion. I argue in my book that the Germans had no strategy that was going to do in six weeks what they could not do in four and a half years of fighting in the First World War. In fact, their strategy was for attrition, which they probably would have lost. There was no blitzkrieg doctrine. It didn't exist. It was German all-arms doctrine. The blitzkrieg myth stems from the victory. A time journalist calls this a blitzkrieg, a lightning war. Similar words have been used to describe victory in Poland. And indeed, once or twice, if you look at the German documents, they had used it themselves. But it was not a doctrine. Talk to any German soldier in the high command in 1940, 41, about Blitzkrieg, wouldn't have a clue what you're talking about. What this does do, however, and this is the point that I'll leave you on, it leads the Germans to think that they have found the key to military victory. And that it could be used against a far weaker enemy on the Eastern Front in 1941. And of course, conditions there are so completely different to conditions of 1940 as to make that a very dodgy proposition indeed. I think we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. That was Lloyd Clark. Blitzkrieg, Myth, Reality and Hitler's Lightning War, France 1940, is out now in both the UK and the US, published by Atlantic. And if you'd like to attend future BBC History magazine events, do keep an eye on the magazine, and indeed an ear on this podcast, as we'll be announcing details of our autumn weekends in the next few weeks. Meanwhile, the March issue of BBC History magazine is currently on sale. This month we have articles on Victorian poverty, the Roman Praetorian Guard, Elizabeth I's Irish nemesis and plenty more. You can get hold of our March issue in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we've currently got a great deal available for new subscribers in the United Kingdom, where you can get 13 issues for the price of just eight. For more details and to take advantage of this offer, please visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash HTP214. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down 
and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, if you enjoy this podcast, then why not vote for us at the British Podcast Awards? You can do so now by heading to britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote and searching for History Extra. And now it's time for the latest history news with our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. Archaeologists digging at the site of a new housing estate in Pontefract, West Yorkshire, have discovered more than 30 Roman skeletons. The skeletons, which are described by the West Yorkshire Archaeology Advisory Service as a unique find for the area, were unearthed alongside pottery, jewellery and building remains. David Hunter from the Advisory Service told the BBC, quote, We are pretty confident that they are from the Roman era in Yorkshire, so about 1700 years ago. They were probably farmers, but they may have done other activities as well. Nancy Rosenberg of Prospect Archaeology, who are working on behalf of the developers, added, For West Yorkshire, a rural cemetery of over 80 inhumations dating from the Roman period marks an unprecedented opportunity to learn more about our ancestors. In other news, a man has been charged with criminal damage after an attack on a painting by Thomas Gainsborough, which was displayed at the National Gallery in London. A man was restrained after he allegedly scratched the 1785 work with a sharp object. The painting, which is entitled Mr and Mrs William Hallett, though known as The Morning Walk, was removed from display while the wing of the gallery was closed for two hours. A spokesperson for the gallery said... The damage is limited to two long scratches which have penetrated the paint layers but not the supporting canvas. Conservators will now decide how to best restore the painting. Meanwhile, a batch of records released by the National Archives has revealed that the Foreign Office paid compensation to families of British airmen shot dead after the Great Escape in World War II. 73 of the 76 men who escaped the Stalag Luft III German prisoner of war camp in 1944 were recaptured and 50 were later shot. The events were famously dramatised in a 1963 film starring Steve McQueen. One family member of a serviceman who was killed by the Nazis told the BBC that the compensation his family was offered in 1966 had helped to bring closure. OK, well that's pretty much it for this week, but please do listen in next time 
when we'll be talking about a First World War tragedy, among other things. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.